Alright, good evening. Uh, I'm excited to get back into the text of Hosea with you guys. Um, as you probably figured out from the reading, we're going to be covering quite a bit of text tonight. Uh, Hosea 11, uh, verse 12, all the way over through uh, chapter 13 and verse 16. So this represents uh, the third cycle that we have in the book of Hosea that follows this similar pattern. So in the first three chapters, we saw the pattern of the sin, then the punishment, and then the restoration. And then from chapters 4 all the way over through chapter 11, we saw that same cycle. They talked about the sin, the punishment that was due for the sin, and then the subsequent restoration. But rather than ending uh, the book in chapter 11 with that picture of uh, the the family of Yahweh um, coming in as, uh, as a lion calling in his trembling children from the west, uh, we're going to get one more cycle and one more picture from Hosea of this exact same cycle, the sin uh, and the punishment, and then you'll see uh, next week, Lord willing, the, the restoration in chapter 14. This round is the last of those rounds, and as it's the last of those rounds, uh, it will be Israel's last warning, which means it's going to be the harshest of all the punishments that Israel faces, and it's also going to be the grandest of their restorations. However, the, the clear through line in this text can really be pinpointed down into chapter 13 and verse 4. So if you look with me at chapter 13, verse 4, it reads, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And this is a really clear through line statement about who God is in relation to his people. He says, I am the Lord your God. This is the same statement that's found in Exodus chapter 20 when God gives them the Ten Commandments. Um, and this is a clear, really anchoring in the point of God being jealous for his people. He, he wants his people. He, he desires their affection. He is their God. And they have no God besides him. And he actually goes as far as to say in that verse that besides me there is no Savior. So really that's going to be the anchor point for us this evening. But we're going to begin the lawsuit once again, uh, and we're going to look at really the current assessment of Israel today, uh, where they're at right now, before we go through uh, a brief history lesson as well. You'll be familiar in the book of Hosea so far, we've seen a lot of these history lessons with a current accusation that's then anchored in uh, a historical trend that we see. And so this, uh, this section is no different. And so starting in chapter 11, though, verse 12, uh, it reads like this. It says, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. In this first section, uh, really chapter 12 or chapter 11, verse 12 and chapter 12, verse 1, you get this picture of um, kind of the consistent deceit, the consistent lies, the consistent falsehood that is present within the people. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. That is a clear statement about the fact that both that the people of God consistently lie to God and they actually surround him in, in a whole sphere of lies. The whole landscape is filled with lying. And then uh, some of you who have an NIV or an NASB translation, uh, you'll look at verse 12 and you'll see that it reads actually completely opposite 
in that second half. In the ESV, it says, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Now, unfortunately, we won't have time to get into that tonight. Uh, there's uh, a lot of translation things going on there. And if you have questions about it, you can uh, ask me or uh, you can dive into further study this week. I uh, highly, highly recommend that. But uh, we won't have time to get into all that tonight. But again, if you have questions or concerns about that, please just uh, ask me. Um, then we go on, though, uh, then in chapter 12, verse 1, he continues this thought about Ephraim having surrounded him with lies, the house of Israel being deceitful and uh, not forthcoming with the Lord. Uh, and it says that Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. Ephraim feeds on the wind, uh, harkens back to uh, in chapter 8, where he says, you, you sow wind and you reap the whirlwind, and you're pursuing things all day long that mean nothing. To pursue the wind is the picture of running after something that you can actually that can actually never give you what, what you want it to do. It's, it's sowing falsehood. And so Ephraim not only pursues the wind, but it feeds on it. It seeks the wind for its sustenance. It seeks false things to actually sustain it. Uh, and then it goes as far as to say that they pursue the east wind. Now, the east wind is a picture of the wrath of God. And so not only do they feed on the wind, but this feeding on the wind is a direct pursuit, as Hosea says it, of pursuing God's wrath. Israel is attempting something that is impossible for them to do, which is they're pursuing the wind to try to get the end that they want to get, which is wealth, sustenance, a successful country, a nation state that stands alone uh, and is sovereign. And they just can't get that with their current mechanisms, right? God has given his promises to them in the end of Deuteronomy, saying, if you're faithful to me, I will bless you and multiply you and make you fruitful. And if you're not, there's no one who's going to save you. And so this is... Uh, Israel really deceiving themselves. And uh, Stuart, one of the commentators who writes a book on Hosea, says it this way. He says that Ephraim, the alliance seeker, the alliance is being uh, the pursuit of the wind, says Ephraim, the alliance seeker, was therefore Ephraim, the idiot. And so they do things that are just flatly stupid uh, in their pursuit of their false gods, their, their own ability to accomplish things that God has promised in and only and through himself. And so they pursue the east wind, they multiply falsehood and violence, they make a covenant with Assyria. This is their on-the-ground pursuit of the wind, trying to seek these foreign military powers and these foreign alliances. And then uh, oil is carried to Egypt, and that would have been as a bribe. Uh, oil should have been carried to the house of the Lord and offered uh, as fragrance and incense to him. But instead, it's going to Egypt, who they think they can find their uh, comfort in. So then he's going to transition. Jose is going to transition from this initial on-the-ground assessment of where Israel's at, and he's going to move and anchor in their history why this is a big problem. And he's going to do so primarily using the patriarch Jacob. So in really verses 2 through verse 5 of chapter 12, you're going to get this uh, wordplay with Jacob, uh, the patriarch, and uh, Israel, the current nation. And if you uh, know your Bible, uh, Jacob is actually renamed Israel. So he's contrasting the patriarch that they're named after with the current state of the nation themselves. So in verse 2, it goes like this. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed, and he wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord... It's his memorial name. 
Now, before we dive really into the section, I want to point out to you something that you see in verse 2, which is, he says, the Lord will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. And lest you think that that is an Old Testament God thing, that this is something that was true in the Old Testament, it's not really true in the New. Uh, I just would like to put down a few references for you in the New Testament where you can see similar language. In Matthew 16, verse 27, uh, Jesus says that he will repay each person according to what he has done. In Romans chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says that he will render to each one according to his works. And in Galatians 6, 7, uh, Paul writes that, uh, God, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. What a man sows, that shall he reap. This is that language of uh, he will repay people according to their deeds. Now, this is a scary thing if you also understand what the Bible says about our own deeds in their sight before God, because God says that the wages of sin is death. And so paying someone according to their deeds is a bad thing for us. And it's really a bad thing for Israel because their track record shows that their deeds are disloyalty and faithlessness to God, uh, being a rebellious son, which all demands the punishment of death. And so here we get the contrast then with Jacob, the forefather of Israel, and then Israel, the nation itself. In verse 3, it describes Jacob as taking his brother by the heel and striving with God in his manhood. So the, the contrast here is that Jacob strives with God, meaning he walks with him, he seeks him, he, he pursues God. Whereas Israel doesn't strive with God or they don't strive after God, they don't seek God. Israel forgets God. And so there's a contrast here, which is that Israel forgets God, but Jacob, their forefather, who was renamed Israel, strove with God. And so the very name that they take pride in is a name that is really not theirs to have because Jacob, their forefather, strove with God. So his, his offspring ought to do the same. And then you'll see again, uh, if you look down in verse 4, it says, He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and he sought his favor. And this is not uh, really in the biblical account in Genesis of this same encounter of Jacob wrestling with the angel. Um, you don't get the word weeping in that account. But if you look at weeping, uh, even if you don't see that in the Genesis account, what that word is trying to get at in Hebrew is that Jacob earnestly seeks God's favor. And in that account, Jacob is wrestling with the angel and he won't let the angel go. He, he holds him. He says, I won't let you go until you give me the blessing. And Jacob is desperate for this blessing. He knows that he needs it. He knows that he, he won't be able to do well without it. And so he seeks favor with God. He, wet, he weeps and he seeks favor. He earnestly seeks the favor of God. And by contrast, Israel today arrogantly assumes God's favor. And when I say today, I mean in this context in Hosea, Israel arrogantly assumes that they already have God's favor. Therefore, they don't need to seek God's favor. So they don't seek God. And then the last contrast there is that he meets God at Bethel and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. And the contrast there is that Jacob, who gets renamed Israel, uh, he meets with God. He hears what God has to say, and he listens to what God has to say. Not perfectly, uh, not perfectly at all, but he, he knows who God is. He's not confused about that. And Israel, uh, in the current nation, the nation of the whole, doesn't meet with God. It flees from God, and it doesn't want to hear what God has to say, and God will send it prophets, and they won't listen to those prophets. And then verse 5 is the tragic, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. 
the reality is that Israel only gets one God, and his name is Yahweh, the Lord, the God of hosts. The Lord is his memorial name. You'll see the capital letters L-O-R-D, all capitals. And that is an indicator that what it's trying to communicate here in English to us is not Lord Adonai, which it uh, tries to communicate at other times, but Lord Yahweh. Um, that's the, the revealed name of God, his covenant name. And so God is saying here that there, Israel only has one God. His name's Yahweh. And he's already revealed himself to the patriarch Jacob. And Israel is not being faithful to that God as he's revealed himself. And then he carries an exhortation to have the nation repent. In verse 6, he says, So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. He's calling on them to do what Jacob did, which is to seek God, to strive with God, to seek after God, to wait for him, to listen to him, to have this posture of repentance where they're dependent on God for their survival and their success. He calls on the nation to repent. And there are those in the nation who are going to hear this oracle and who are going to repent. And we know that uh, because they're, not all the people are taken to exile and killed and wiped off the face of the earth. There is a remnant that God keeps, even in this desolation. There are those who are going to hear this message and who are going to believe the message and are going to be convicted of their own sin, and they're going to do what Hosea tells them to do. And by the help of God, they're going to be able to return, and they're going to be able to hold fast to love and justice. And they're going to be able to wait continually on God. <clears throat> but by contrast, the current nation uh, is not overall going to listen to this oracle. And so rather than giving them a chance to believe they have neutrality, uh, he says, hold fast to love and justice in verse 6. And then right after that in verse 7, he's going to show them exactly how they don't do that in their current context. He says in verse 7, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. And that, that word at the beginning of verse 7, a merchant, uh, the Hebrew can also translate to a Canaanite. It's the same uh, word that gets translated over. And so he is literally saying that the people of Israel are Canaanites in whose hands are false balances. They're no different in the surrounding nations. And so even though they say they're ethnically Israelites, they might have come from the genetic bloodline of this patriarch. They're no different than the surrounding peoples, the surrounding nations. They're not God-fearing and they don't listen to God. So he calls them merchants and Canaanites in whose hands are false balances. And false balances is someone who's going to take a transaction, particularly in a society that has a barter system, and they're going to play the odds in their favor and cheat other people out of wealth in financial transactions. And in doing this, this is how they're going to oppress other people. This is how they're going to build wealth for themselves. And then they turn around eventually and they say, but I'm rich. I have found wealth for myself. And in all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. But the reality is we know, according to verse 7, that there was sin and iniquity in the accumulation of that wealth. And so I want you to notice the pattern here. The pattern is that evil men create false balances and this is what causes oppression. Evil men create systems that cause oppression. And this is very different than the narrative that our society has today, which is that there are systems of oppression, and people are infected individually by these systems, and therefore this is why oppression happens. 
sin says that it's a heart problem. It's not a society problem. It's not a world problem. Yes, there are evil systems in place in the world today, but it's not a system problem. It's a heart problem, and it happens at the individual level. Evil men, people who love to oppress, create systems that have false balances. They build wealth for themselves, and in doing so, they oppress and cheat other people out of wealth, out of money, and they gain advantage by pushing other people down. This is, at the heart level, a personal problem. It says that he, being the merchant, loves to oppress. And the reality of that statement is that it just is true about sin. We all sin because we love to sin. We all sin because we love to sin. Sin is not something that we do against our will. It's not something that uh, we know better and then we do it. The reason when we say things like that is that we know better, but we do it anyway, is because in our heart, there's something that relishes and enjoys and really craves sin. We enjoy it. And this is why we do it. And that's, a, that's kind of a harsh statement. He loves to oppress. But the reality of that statement is it's a true statement. He loves to oppress. That's why he's doing it. He loves to be in power. He loves to have the system advantage built up. That was true about the Israelites then. They love to pursue their false idols. They love their idolatry. They love, they love their adultery. And the same can be said about any sin as well today. The reason we choose sin over what we know we ought to do, which is to be faithful to a holy God who has given us his commands, is because we love that sin. And at times in our flesh, we love that sin more than God. And Paul talks about this wrestling back and forth in Romans 7. And he says that as a Christian, we can experience victory, but there's still this back and forth tension. And the reality is that the only way you can experience that victory is if God has given you a new heart to love something that's not sin and to pursue something that's not sin. Because the, the heart of the natural man craves sin. It loves sin. This is convicted and natural state. And so although people are free to do what they want to do, they always do what they want to do. And so when people are in bondage and enslaved to sin, as Paul talks about in Ephesians, that means that we are in bondage to ourselves. We're in bondage to our own desire to sin. And although no one has chains on us or shackles on us, we do things because we love to do them. And the thing that we most like to do as humans is to pursue sin. And that's a sad state that Israel finds themselves in. And Ephraim is blind to this, right? And they make a final statement here saying that, I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. They're blind to their own idolatry. They're blind to their own sinfulness. And so here's just an observation straight from the text. You cannot point to either material wealth or material success and say that that is an explicit example of God's favor on a person's life. Yes, Abraham was wealthy. Noah was wealthy. There's plenty of people you can point to in the Old Testament who did have a lot of wealth as a direct sign of God's favor. But Having wealth is not a one-to-one -one correlation with God showing favor on you. And by the way, by, by extension of this idea, not having wealth or being poor is not a direct point. It's not a one-to-one -one of God's explicit disfavor of you or his dislike of you or the fact that he is cursing you personally. Sometimes people are poor and people don't have financial wealth and people aren't being successful not because of anything that God is doing either actively against them or actively for them to bless them or to curse them. 
it is because people make unwise decisions and they end up in those places or some any other number of factors that could be at play it's not a one-to-one sometimes it is a sign of god's favor and every blessing is to be seen as from above but wealth that has gotten unrighteously is not to be seen as a blessing it's a curse and god is making that very clear through his prophet hosea and the teaching that's happening here so although these people love to oppress they love to sin they enjoy their sin the reality is that what they ought to really enjoy is god that's what they really ought to enjoy and this is true for us as well the the sin that we love and we crave and we do um, we really ought to replace that joy and that love with the love of god and that's something we need to pray about and it's a heart level issue it's not a behavior issue it's not something you alter in a pattern of behavior it is a heart level issue But we're going to go on for the sake of time here. Um, And we're going to go to verse 9 of this chapter, uh, chapter 12. And here's the first of that statement. Remember, I pointed to chapter 13, verse 4, where he says, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. And here he's going to say in verse 9 of chapter 12, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. He says, I will again make you dwell in tents. You remember that God dragged them out of Egypt, put them in the wilderness, and he made them dwell in tents. Remember, he didn't let them go into the promised land and dwell in cities or established places. He made them dwell in tents. And he did this under his provision and his guidance. And this whole time, he was providentially taking care of them. And he says, remember that time, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. And I did all those things to you. And I was uh, taking care of you and I was watching over you. I am the Lord your God. And the reality is that that is an exclusive statement, that there is no other God besides the one true God. But he's going to continue with this in verse 10 to say that, and you have no excuse for not knowing this to be true. He says in verse 10 that he sends them prophets. He says, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, and there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are also like stone heaps on the furrow of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and and there Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Now I know I read that whole section as one unit and really it is one unit. But the idea is pretty straightforward. It says that he sends them prophets. He even sends them his own son in the New Testament and they reject him completely. It is God who sent all the prophets and you can see that he is the action in all of this. He says, it's I who spoke to the prophets. It's I who multiplied visions. It is I who provided for Jacob in the time that he was a shepherd. It was I who sent a prophet into the land of Egypt to bring the people out to me. And it is by that prophet who was commissioned by me that the people were guarded in the wilderness, that prophet being Moses. And he sent them the prophets really for two reasons. And you can Uh, see the same example in the New Testament. You can see that a lot of this in the minor prophets as well. He sends the prophets for two reasons. One is which we saw earlier. He sends them to warn people to convict them of sin. The prophets warn and they say their message because there is a chance and there are people who are going to hear that message who are going to become convicted of their sin because God has been working on their heart 
and they're going to repent and they're going to leave on Christ and they're going to repent of all they've done and they're going to be faithful followers of the Lord. There are those who are going to hear the message and that's going to be the response. So this is one reason why God sends the prophets. And there's another reason, and this reason is that there are those who are going to hear the message and they're not going to respond. They're not going to believe it. They're not going to be convicted of sin. And what's going to happen to those people is they're going to harden their hearts against the message. And the prophets are sent both to convict and to harden because those who harden their hearts, they heap further condemnation upon themselves. The prophets were sent both to convict of sin and to warn those who are going to be eventually condemned of sin. And those who are going to be condemned for their sin, who are going to have to pay for their own disgraceful deeds, those people are going to have no excuse. They're not going to be able to say that God didn't warn them or they didn't have ample opportunity because God sent prophets. And even in this time, you can think of how many prophets he sent. Uh, He sent Abraham, he sent Isaac, Jacob, all prophets of the nations. He sent Moses, Aaron. He sent, even if you just flip through the minor prophets here, he's got Hosea, Jeremiah, uh, he's got Ezekiel, you have Isaiah, Amos, Obadiah. You have all these people who have been prophets to the nation, and God sends them all faithfully. And then in the New Testament, you get John the Baptist, who does the same thing. He's a prophet of God. But the prophets are sent here to warn Israel. And he warns Israel, Hosea does, his chosen. He warns them, and then he chooses to extend both the warning and the message, not just to Israel, but also to us, the Gentiles. Remember, he's only responsible for warning the people of Israel. We talked last week about how he had made that promise with Abraham. And so he was going to send prophets to his people, Israel, because they're the offspring of Abraham. They're the ones who he has promised. And then in the New Testament, he flips the script. And he expands that warning message to us as well, both to convict us of sin and bring about repentance, but also also to harden and to convict. And those of us who hear the message in the New Testament time, we ought to be thankful and respectful of Israel because they are the people who, through the message, came those prophets. And they're the people who God initially had in mind. And they're the people who the message was eventually opened to us through, right? Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 11 about the olive tree. And he says that there's a native olive tree and there's a wild olive tree. And we, the Gentiles, are that wild olive tree. And the wild olive tree has these branches that are grafted into the native olive tree. And we are those wild branches. And so Paul says, be, be careful. Don't let your pride get in the way. You should be thankful to Israel for the fact that it is through them that this message of salvation came. It is through them that this message came. And so then he, uh, he continues, and there's an there's a interesting picture here um, in verse 12 of this chapter, chapter 12, verse 12, where Jacob, uh, it says, he, fle- he flees to the land of Aram, and there Israel, being Jacob, the patriarch, he serves for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. And this is a picture of God who's, uh, who's going to shepherd his people. So Israel, or Jacob, Um, was a shepherd to the sheep that he cared for in the land of Aram, where he works and eventually earns himself uh, both Leah and Rachel as wives. But in verse 13, uh, he contrasts this with how God also sends prophets 
to care for his people Israel as a shepherd would care for sheep. So also God sends Moses as a shepherd to his people. So Jacob cared for his sheep and then God sends Moses to care for the people of Israel and lead them out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery and into uh, the promised land. And then he's going to continue this uh, analogy and he's going to close it off here in verse 14 where he says that Ephraim has given bitter provocation so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. And the reality is that either the blood guilt is wiped clean, it's wiped off, and it's paid for, or it's left there. And in this case, the Lord says he's going to leave the blood guilt on Israel, and soon he will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. And this harkens back to verse 2 of the chapter, where it says that the Lord has an indictment against Judah, he will punish Jacob according to his ways, and he will repay him according to his deeds. If the blood guilt is left on and the repayment is going to be had for the deeds, the punishment is going to be death. The guilt here carries an undeniable punishment. The guilt of Israel has been described both as adultery and childhood rebellion. And both of those in the Mosaic law require death by stoning or burning. And so the guilt, if it's left on Israel, if they're the ones who are to pay for it, they ought to be stoned and burned for their sin. This is the punishment, and this is the reality. And remember, Hosea is preaching this faithfully, and in verse 1 of chapter 13, you get the same exact idea. It says, When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. That's Ephraim, who meets Baal, commits idolatry, and through this idolatry, he incurs guilt and dies. He incurs guilt through his idol worship. That's how the sin comes in. And the sin sits and the blood guilt sits and it stays and the payment is death. And then rather than turning away from the initial sin, it says they go on and continue in their sin. In verse 2 he says, and now they sin more and more. And their sin's getting worse, and it's going to become increasingly worse because now they don't have encounters with Baal. They're making these false gods themselves. He says, and they make for themselves metal images, idols, skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, or like dew that goes away early, or like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. Israel not only sins initially, remember, this is not to be seen to us as a one-time event. This is to be seen by us as readers today as a constant pursuit of sin. This was a constant pursuit of Baal. This was a constant pursuit of false gods. And this is a constant pursuit and rebellion against the one true God. They sin with much effort. They take all their skilled craftsmen who were initially there to build the tabernacle and the, the Ark of the Covenant, the people who are skilled and designed in these kinds of trades, and they take these people and they employ them instead in the building of false gods. And what a waste that is, because the talent was given by God to build things for God. But they're pursuing their idolatry, and so the whole nation's economy flips. And rather than being an economy that feeds 
the worship of the one true God. It's an economy that now caters to pagan false god worship as well. They make false images of gods through these craftsmen. And you'll see down there in verse, uh, at the end of verse 2, right before verse 3, it says, uh, it's a quote, it says, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. They make images of false gods, and they even destroy the very image of God himself by sacrificing humans, because humans bear the image of the one true God. And so not only do they kiss calves, and they worship these false gods, but they also do human sacrifice as part of this pagan ritual worship. And so not only do they worship things that ought not to be worshipped, but they destroy human bodies which carry the image of the God that is to be worshipped. And so there's this, uh, there's this almost poetic tragedy that's going on here with the people. And then he says, therefore, he's going to compare them to four things that don't last very long. He's going to compare them to the mist, to the dew, to the chaff, and to the smoke. And he says, in all of these cases, I'm just going to paint the picture very clearly. When it goes, it leaves no trace. And he's going to say that about Israel. They're, they're just a flash in the pan. They're not going to be around for very long because I am going to make them like this as part of my punishment. But he's going to continue on then, and he's going to go to verse 4. This punishment is for a reason. And remember, this is our anchor for understanding this text. He says, but I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. Remember, this stands in contrast to their worship of Baal and their creation of false gods and their pagan worship of the calf god. He says that there is none besides him. God stands alone. There's not even any real other options other than God. There's no real false gods other than the one true God. There's only one God. And his name is Yahweh, and he is mighty to be worshipped. And this is God being jealous for the affection of his people. In the New Testament, in John chapter 10, Jesus says it this way. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the only shepherd. In fact, there are other shepherds of other flocks, but they don't care for this sheep. They're all hirelings. And when they try to get into this flock, they're, they're robbers and they're thieves and they're destroyers. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the one. And that means there's only one shepherd who ought to take care of the sheep. There's only one protector. And this is explicit, and it says that there's really no other shepherd. So it's either Jesus or no one. In John chapter 16, uh, in that same book, uh, the Gospel of John, he says it this way. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He says there is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. By the way, uh, the English grammar, uh, you could have said that I am a way and a truth and a life, which is what a lot of people believe that Jesus said. They believe that he said that he is an option, but not an exclusive option. But he says, I am the way, the only way. In fact, if you go any other way, if you go the broad way that many people go, you're not on the way. You're not following Jesus. And he says also that he is the truth. The definite article means an exclusive claim. He's the truth. He's not one of many truths. In fact, there's no such thing as many truths. He is the only truth. He is the exclusive truth. And the Bible is the explicit word of God that it makes explicit 
truth claims. And it is the truth because the Bible is breathed out by this God. And not only does he say he's the way and that he says he's the truth, but he says he is the life. If you want eternal life, if you want the life that is everlasting, if you want the blessing of the Father, he is the life. There's no other God. There's no other deity. There's no other, I should say, false God that can offer this. And by the way, this is often seen as narrow-minded. A lot of people will kind of shrink away at this idea. But this is not a narrow-minded idea. Okay? A lot of people who, who are afraid of this, they'll, they'll concede that Jesus is a way, but not that he is the only way. Um, and I just want to remind you that this is Jesus himself making this statement. Okay? This is Jesus himself saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. Okay? But this is not narrow-minded. This is good news. It's good news to know that there is a way. Because remember, the problem is really bad for Israel. They're sinners. They love to sin. They have this big problem with sin. And no matter how many kings they have, no matter how many reforms they have, no matter how many times they get the law read out loud and delivered to them, they have no power to change their actions. And there is a way. There's only one way. There's only the way to be saved from that sin. But there's a way. There's an option. There's a way out. So this is not a narrow-minded thing. This is not a bad thing. It's a loving thing to tell someone who's destined for destruction there is a solution to their problem and then to accurately tell them what that solution is. It's a really hateful thing to tell someone that they have sin and that they need to get that sin forgiven but then not give them any clear directions on how they are to go about doing that. It's a very loving thing to tell someone that Jesus forgives sin and that he's the option out and that he's the one who's going to transform your life and when he becomes Lord of your life, He becomes your savior as well, and he actually delivers you from the wrath of God. That's a loving thing to say, because that's a reality statement. If you believe this to be true, and you can see that there are other people who ought to be worshipped, such as Muhammad or Buddha or um, any other of these false gods, what you're really saying is you're not convinced that Jesus is the only way. And what you're really saying then is that Jesus is not even really to be trusted because if he says that he's the only way and you don't believe him saying that, then why do you believe he's a good teacher? Because then he, he was a liar, to be honest. He makes exclusive truth claims about himself and it leaves no room for confusion. And a lot of times people understand Jesus perfectly when he says this and they hate him for it. And this is what God is getting at here through Hosea when he says, and besides me, there is no savior. He does provide a Savior. He is the Savior. But besides Him, there is no Savior. There's no salvation from the wrath of God. If you're not in Jesus, you're not protected from the wrath of God. That is the only way. That is the only salvation. And He he condemns the people who, who know this to be true and deny it. He says, you should know this. It was I, verse 8, verse 5, it was I who knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full and they were filled and their heart was lifted up and therefore they forgot me. He's telling them, you remembered this. I taught this to you. I sent you my prophets. And then I fed you and I filled you up and I gave you all that you needed. I met all your needs. 
and you you turned away and you became full and you're and once you were done eating your heart lifted up and they forgot me and notice it's their heart that's lifted up it's their heart that turns away from god it it rejects god it leaves him at first sight and so then the punishment should naturally follow in verse 7 he says i will it is, so i am to them like a lion like a leopard i will lurk beside the way i will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs i will tear open their breast and there I will devour them like a lion, and as a wild beast, I would rip them open. It says in verse 9, He destroys you, Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king? To save you in all of your cities, where are your, all your rulers, those of whom you have said, Give me kings and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The interesting thing about this, this punishment uh, section here in verse 7, really to the end of verse 11, uh, is this shouldn't come as a shock, okay? The people outrightly and explicitly deny the one true God who's revealed himself to them. He provides them with all these blessings, and in their blessings and in their comfort, they deny him. I'm going to flip over to Revelation uh, chapter 19. I want you to know that this is the same message that Jesus has in the New Testament, right? This is not uh, an Old Testament God thing, okay? This is not something that God... Uh, was like back then and he's not like anymore. In fact, one of the coming hopes that we have in Revelation 19 is that Jesus will come back in fury. Revelation 19 and verse 11 says this. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword which is to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name that is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is how Jesus is identified in his second coming. He is going to come like that lion, like that bear. And he's going to rip apart all of his enemies. He destroys them because they're against him. And he stores up his wrath for them. Look at verse 12 of chapter 13. It says, The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. There's this idea that God withholds the pouring out of his wrath. And he's patient to withhold the pouring out of his wrath, hoping that people will repent. His desire is that all would be saved and none would die. And he withholds his wrath. And when people don't, when they reject him, when they, when they turn away from him, he rightly will pour out all of his wrath that he's been storing up. And in verse 13, you get this interesting uh, metaphor here. It says, The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For the, At the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. The picture here is that Israel is, is a child that is about to be delivered. And in, and in ancient times, you, either the child was oriented correctly or it wasn't. And when, when the pangs of birth come, there's only a limited amount of time for the child to be oriented in the right way and to be delivered out. 
right? And, and there's a limited amount of time, right? The, con the contractions start happening and there's a limited space of time for that child to orient correctly and come out. And if the child is not oriented correctly, then the child will, will die. If it's not delivered out of the womb, the child will die. And often in ancient times, so would the mother. And so if you remember this metaphor, it goes all the way back in the initial parts of Hosea, where Hosea compares the children to the individual people and the, the mother to Israel, the nation. And he says the individual people do not orient themselves correctly in wisdom at the right time when there's this urgent moment for them to repent. They don't orient themselves correctly. And so they, the individuals, will die. The baby will die. And the mother will also die. The nation, Israel, will pass away. And he's going to continue with this really last section, verse 14 over through 16, which is really a, con a concluding statement of judgment. And he, he lands like this. He says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, and his spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt, because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little one shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant woman ripped open. And that language at the end of verse 16, that being torn apart and ripped open, is the same language that you saw in verse 8, where he says, he will devour them and he will rip them open. This is God who's exacting his judgment on the people. And in verse 14, uh, this is a, a verse that is quoted by Paul in the New Testament, but uh, it has led to a lot of confusion, and so I just want to clarify some things here. In verse 14, depending if you have an ESV, in the ESV it says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from the power of death. Those are definite statements. But in the NIV and in the NASB, and sometimes even in older copies of the ESV, you'll get it more put as a question. It says, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? And the idea here is that it's a rhetorical question. And the shall I is actually a, a better translation. It's a, it's a correct translation. It's a shall I redeem them? Shall I ransom them? And the obvious answer to this question should be no. The people do not deserve to be ransomed. They've been given ample opportunity to repent. So he, he should not ransom them. He should not redeem them from death, their ultimate punishment. And then this question, O death, where are your plagues? O shield, where is your sting? In the New Testament, Paul uses this as a victory message after Jesus has come. But in this present 